Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at Pierre by Herman Melville, his 1852 novel. Uh, we talked in the last episode about, uh, on the one hand, just how odd this novel is, how its 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 approach is bizarre. It, it's not a sailor's fiction. It's not a novel of the sea like his other six novels. The setting is very bizarre. It's set in this... Uh, almost like aristocratic setting, but it's in upstate New York. Um, our characters are very odd. They communicate with each other very, very strangely. Pierre is the, the son of a widow living on this big estate. He's about to marry the love of his life, Lucy Tartan. They're presented in overblown language as an ideal couple. And then Pierre's life is disrupted when he finds out that he has a half-sister uh, fathered by the, the father that, that he idealized and that he... You know, he has portraits on, on the walls that he talks to, you know, that, that just reflect how, how much he idealized his father. Now, this shatters his worldview, and the consequences of that are what we're going to look at in, in this episode. This will, this will carry us through chapter 9 of, of Pierre to about the halfway point in the novel. One thing I've noticed, having read about half of Pierre, is that not much happens in the first half of the novel. Um, if, if it stays at the same pace... You know, I don't think there's going to be that whole the whole lot of plot here. I mean, mostly in the last episode, I just talked about the language and the approach and the narration of, of the novel. All that really happened is we're introduced to these characters. Um, he runs into this woman living at a nearby estate who he somehow sort of recognizes. He seems to recognize him from the photos. He gets a letter from her and he realizes this is his half-sister. And then he, he, you know, he starts to have a bit of a nervous breakdown. That's all that really happens in the first quarter of this, of this rather lengthy, lengthy novel. Most of it, you know, almost seems like like filler. And I think that's part of the shocking, uh, you know, way this novel comes to us. Even now, I mean, in the 19th century, it was it was rejected. the 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 headline of one of the reviews coming out of New York was that Melville's gone crazy. I can imagine why, why people thought that. It's even harder to read, I think, from the modern worldview. Maybe unless you like kind of this overwrought uh, 19th, 19th century English style romances or something. But, you know, for the average American reader, this, this is not this is not most this is not usually their cup of tea. And this part, uh, the second part of the novel, the second quarter is is much the same way. It's. Not that much really happens for us to talk about. It's mostly about its style and its the, the feel of, of, of the novel here. So chapter five is called Misgivings and Preparations. And this starts out by him still musing over his picture of his father. And we've seen in the last chapter how his, his views of his father has already begun to change. But now he's considering more and more what he's supposed to do about this. You know, the fact that... His half-sister has emerged, that this will come out, that his father's legacy will be tarnished. But he also has this kind of love for his half-sister. He's wanted a sister his entire life. One of the first things we learn about him is he regrets never having a sister. So he also wants to preserve her reputation and make sure she can have a stable place in his household or in, with his name. So, um, you know, this is some of the thoughts that go through his head. And it goes on for pages after pages. Quote, to a less enthusiastic heart than Pierre's, the foremost question in respect to Isabel, 
which would have presented itself would be, what must I do? But such a question never presented itself to Pierre. The spontaneous responsiveness of his being left no shadow of dubiousness as to the direct point he must aim at. But if the object was plain, not so much path to it, how must he, I do it? Was the problem for him, or was the problem for which at first there seemed no chance of solution? But without being entirely aware of it himself, Pierre was one of those spirits which not in a determinate and sordid scrutiny of small pros and cons, but in an impulsive, subversive, to godlike detection of events themselves find at length the surest solution of perplexities and the brightest precognitive command. And as for him, what must I do was a question already answered by the inspiration of a difficult of the difficulty itself. So now he as it were unconsciously discharged his mind for the present of all distracting considerations concerning how he should do it. Like what and that whole long passage, you know, half a page, is just him musing on the fact that he's already committed to somehow ensuring Isabel's place in his in his household but the question is that how to do it and this is what he he muses on for for many pages how do you do does this without disrespecting his mother and digging up dirt that will will discredit her own reputation i mean there's even this fear that his mother will be sort of corrupted by the same fate that's throwing pierre to to wherever he's going to go um so he dwells on this for a while in front of the portrait of his father at some point i think it's in this chapter he actually turns his father's portrait away so he doesn't actually have to so he doesn't look at him and this again is just more evidence of how his attitude towards his father who idealized has changed so radically and with this his whole kind of legacy his whole the whole history on which he builds his identity from from very early on in the story this kind of aristocratic american aristocratic um, identity so he kind of slows things down with his fiancee lucy uh, and this has already started happening in the previous part, but he, he writes a letter basically saying he's not going to see her for a while and not to worry, but but they're going to have to kind of put put the brakes on their relationship. But the letter is in this very odd language of force, how he's really being drawn into something against his will almost. Quote, Lucy, dear, I would not dream of staying from you so long unless irresistibly coerced to it. Do not come to the mansion until I come to you, and do not... Manifest any curiosity or anxiety about me, should you chance at the interval to see my mother in any other place. Just keep as cheerful as if you were by, by as if I were by you all the time. So this is his letter to, to Lucy, um, and all this, all these decisions he's making in his head about slowing down his his marriage to Lucy, about committing to some action in regards to Isabel. All this happens before he even meets her, before he even sees her, before he has any real evidence that. She is who she says she is. It's all just like an instant transformation in his mind, just from a letter. So later he goes to see his mother, and he has the same kind of strange conversations he has with his mother. And uh, they end up meeting up with a Mr. Fallsgrave, who's like a local preacher, some kind of religious leader. And they have a conversation about... Uh, something that strikes right to the heart of Pierre's anxieties and, and fears. And that is, they talk about uh, basically an illegitimate child that's recently been born um, between, a, the father was a guy named Ned, and the mother was um, Della Ulver. And Della Ulver is like a, a, a lower class person who lives on, on a nearby estate. And this kind of piques Pierre, who starts inquiring 
with Falgrave about who bears the responsibility for an illegitimate child, what should happen to the child, what's the status of the mother, and all these different concerns that are, of course, running through Pierre's own head in regards to, to Isabella. Again, this woman he's, he's never met. And we're presented in the same kind of overdrawn language that, that frames so much of the first half of this novel, this image of Mr. Falsgrave as this, this part of like this clerical aristocracy in America. He's presented as a, as a Christian gentleman uh, who's kind of worked his way up into this religious aristocracy through his hard work. Quote, the child of a poor northern farmer who had wedded a pretty seamstress. The clergy had no heldaric line of ancestry to show his warrant and explanation of his handsome person and gentle manners, at first being the willful particularity of nature, and second, the consequence of a scholastic-like attempted by a taste of the choicest female society, however small, which he had always regarded as the best relish of existence. If now his manners thus responded to his person, his mind answered to them both, and it was his finest illustration. Besides his eloquent persuasiveness in the pulpit, various fugitive papers upon subjects of nature, art, and literature attested not only his refined affinity to all beautiful things, visible or invisible, but likewise that he possessed a genius for celebrating such things, which in a less indulgent and more ambitious nature would have been sure to have gained the fair poet's name ere now. For this, Mr. Falgrave was just hovering upon the prime of years, a period which in such a man is a sweetness and to a mature woman by far the most attractive of manly life, end quote. Obviously, there's almost a suggestion here of, of attraction or possible relationship between, between Mary, uh, Pierre's mother, and and this, this Mr. Fallsgrave, um, he's presented almost as, the, as, as someone who attracts a lot of the attention of the, of the local women in this way. Which, of course, there, the fact that there's a sexual overtone here isn't surprising. It runs throughout the whole novel, everything from, from incest to other kinds of illicit uh, sexual relations. Um, but they finally get down to the conversation about this, and, and he starts to you know, be very judgmental, and Fallsgrave is very judgmental about Ned's adultery, and his sins, and and basically he, he thinks that, you know, in a biblical sense that that these sins carry on to the child. He even quotes the Bible saying, the sins of the father shall be visited upon the children to the third generation. But then Falsgrave kind of turns on this with a very Calvinist idea of kind of collective communal sin, that the, the sin of this one family, this one sinner, is on the community in a way for them not really caring for him, or there's some kind of societal moral failing. This is a very Calvinist um, idea, which, of course, um, came to America through the, the Puritan migrations and, and stayed as a big part of American religious beliefs. That, of course, is going to run counter to the, great, uh, the, the Second Great Awakening ideas of more individualized redemption and, and salvation that, you know, that comes in the 1840s. Maybe, you know, Melville's thinking about that a little bit, but... Um, we're back to this um, um, kind of collective idea. And he's trying to justify essentially punishing uh, this woman for giving birth to an illegitimate child and therefore then essentially punishing the child. And of course, for obvious reasons, Pierre is bothered by this, this attitude of Fulgrave for basically passing on judgment onto, onto the child for something that was no fault of their own, just like Isabel's life was thrown off course by, by no fault of her own, just by who her parentage was. And he gets right to the to this when asked, he asked the clerk, the, this Falgrave's a specific question. This is Pierre asking it. 
um, which is directly to his own situation. It's not really related to Ned's situation directly, but he says, should the legitimate child shun the illegitimate when one father is father to both? So does illegitimacy break up this bond between brother and sister? That's what he's asking. And he, he muses on this for a while, and he comes to this conclusion, and he gives this essentially a sermon about this. He says, It is one of the social disadvantages which we of the pulpit labor under, that we are supposed to know more of the moral obligations of humanity than other people. And it is a still more serious disadvantage to the world that our unconsidered controversial opinions on the most complex problems of ethics are too apt to be considered authoritative, as indirectly proceeding from the church itself. No, nothing can be more erroneous than such notions, and nothing so embarrasses me and deprives me of such entire serenity, which is indispensable to the delivery of a careful opinion on moral subjects, than when we send sudden questions of such course are put to me in company. Pardon this long preamble, for I have little more to say. It is not every question, however direct, Mr. Glendinning, which can be conscientiously answered with a yes or no. Millions of circumstances modify all moral questions, so that though conscience may possibly dictate free, freely in any known special case, yet the one universal maxim to embrace all moral contingencies. This is not only impossible, but attempt to me seem foolish. And then he finally gets to it. That's all preamble. That's all him blabbing about how, you know, we can't make moral decisions absolute, and there's always conditions and, and, and all that. But he finally comes to it. Honor thy father and mother. Um, no, sorry, this is Pierre. Pierre's the one. So it's the clergyman who, who equivocates and waffles. And then it's Pierre who goes right to the commandments and says, honor thy father and mother, both of them. And both must be um, honored. And then he, he turns it around and says, what if my father was a seducer? Do I honor him less because of this? Do I still have to honor him? Do I have, to, um, do I have that moral obligation? And, and he eventually sort of agrees with that. But I think the sense we get here is just the wishy-washiness of, of the clergy at the time. Um, I think some of this comes from maybe the Great Awakening attitude where clergy are kind of seeking out audiences. They're more trying to be uh, comforting to people. They're trying to, they're trying to advertise their, their faith so they get, you know, because churches are in these days um, an open marketplace, right? People are, there aren't state churches, so people can go to any church they want. So clergy become then entertainers almost. Uh, and people who try to satisfy the, the spiritual needs of people, not giving them the hard truth of Helen um, Brinstone, but really satisfying their, their kind of moral prejudices, equivocating on those, and all, all that. So what we the picture we get here is of the clergy as equivocator and Pierre as sticking to his moral roots. And obviously there's no no answer he's going to get from from these, these clergy. Um, so, yeah, I think that does it. So he goes on then from this conversation to go meet... Uh, Isabel, because they, they had arranged this meeting, I think, in, in the original letter. There was a, an arranged date that they were going to meet. And so chapter 6 is called The First Part of the Story of Isabel. And so they, they end up meeting, and we just get her story, and she starts to tell um, Pierre his, her, her life story as far as she remembers it from the earliest days. And it's a picture just of a very lonely, isolated, bleak childhood. Um, she basically didn't really have many people in her life. Her earliest memories of like parental figures are just an old man and an old woman who came by once in a while. Uh, she has some memory of her father who she didn't even really know as a father, but there was a man who came by and she learned the word father from him. And he seemed to like visiting her 
But then he stops visiting at one point and he hears that that man had died. So this is all she really knows of, of her father. In fact, the first line of her story is one of isolation and loneliness. Quote, I have never known a mortal mother. The further stretch of my life's memory cannot recall one single feature of such a face. If indeed mother of mine hath lived, she is long gone, and cast no shadow on the ground she trod. Pierre, the lips that I do now speak to thee never touched a woman's breast. I seem not of woman born. Which actually is the exact opposite of Pierre, who's surrounded by women. Um, by the way, he's... he's in a way overly feminized in in his company and Isabel's the opposite who who's really a, on her own she has to kind of make it on her own because she has very few people caring for her just sporadically it seems when she gets old enough when she I think she's about 11 or 12 she gets taken away by a like a farmer's wife who cares for a little bit but she she really has to start making her own way at this point so she begins working and this is what she says about this. I, um, but I was strong and I was a grown girl now. I said to the woman, keep me hard at work. Let me work all the time, but let me stay with thee. But the other girls were sufficient to do the work. Me they wanted not. The farmer looked out of his eyes at me, and, and the outlookings of his eyes seemed plainly to me. Thee we do not want. Go from us. Thou art one too many, and thou art, one too, and thou art, thou art more than one too many. Then I said to the woman, hire me out to someone. Let me work for someone. But I spared too wide my little story. I must make an end. And eventually the woman does help her get, get some kind of job. Basically apprenticing her out uh, so she's able to, to support herself. As you know, She's still just a, a fairly young girl at this point in the story. This part of the story, though, ends a little strangely because she, she buys a guitar from a peddler who's just coming by and the thing the guitar was very kind of shabby it had broken springs but she was instantly captivated by this guitar so she uses whatever money she has to purchase this guitar and she starts to teach herself songs and starts to learn to play and here's how she writes of it, it it's, it's like the guitar is her connection to broader humanity almost something she's been denied most of her life she says, the guitar was human. The guitar taught me the secret of the guitar. The guitar learned me to play the guitar. No music master had I ever had but the guitar. I made a loving friend of it, a heart friend of it. It sings to me as I to it. Love is not all on one side of my guitar. All the wonders that are unimaginable and unspeakable. All the wonders are translated into the mysterious melodiousness of the guitar. It knows all my past history. Sometimes it plays to me the mystic visions of the confused large house I never name. Sometimes it brings me to the bird twitterings in the air, and sometimes it strikes me up in rapturous pulsations of legendary delights, eternally unexperienced and unknown to me. Bring me the guitar. So she asks for the guitar, um, but but this ends the chapter, and this ends this phase of the of the conversation. It seems they just kind of go on singing together, and and the meeting uh, draws to the end. So that's chapter six. It's the first story, part of her story, and it's all about this loneliness this struggle for survival, this abandonment. And it's about, the, in a sense, the moral consequences of, of adultery and illegitimacy at this point in American history. There really wasn't a place for these women. And Falsgrave's choice on how to deal with this, this the bastard of this Ned and, and this, this woman, what was her name, Della, you know, it's, it's, it's paralleling very much... Uh, uh, Isabel's own life and Pierre's later decisions will be will be you know directly reflective of what he hears about Isabella's experience. 
So Pierre is obviously captivated and obsessed with the mystery of Isabella at this point. In fact, they even sing a song about the mystery of Isabella. That's what Pierre calls out. He calls out, Girl of all bewildering mystery, speak to me, sister. If thou indeed canst be a thing that's mortal, speak to me if thou be Isabella. Isabel. Mystery, mystery, mystery of Isabel. Mystery, mystery, Isabel and mystery. And this is all in the midst of their kind of dancing and waltzing and other, you know, merrymaking with this, with this guitar. So that's chapter six. Chapter seven is called The Intermediate Between Pierre's Two Interviews with Isabel at the Farmhouse. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just the period between his second meeting, between his first and second meeting with Isabella, where she's going to get the rest, he's going to get the rest of the story. Now, like so many chapters in at least the first half of this book, I haven't yet read reread the second half of it. It's been years since I took a, 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 like basically a skim of this book. I, I didn't um, read it very carefully the first time I, I looked at it. But uh, this chapter is mostly Pierre's thoughts, his musings on all this. And it, it goes on for quite a while. He thinks again about how we should go about restoring Isabel's kind of reputation. Um, he also thinks through the evidence she provides with what he's already collected because he's, he's listened to rumors about her, his father's affairs or lovers um, and some of the servants and local people seem to know about that. He matches that with Isabel's story and he thinks it basically checks out. So he doesn't have any doubts about her. He has a few questions about her age and things, but he's fully committed to this. In fact, even before he gets the evidence, he believes her. It's actually going to be in chapter 8 where he goes back to meet Isabel that she gives the evidence about her connection to the Glendinging family and how she figured it out. So he's, he's kind of running with this, you know, putting the cart before the horse in a way. Um, and that's just kind of part of his character. He's, that's, that's who Pierre is. Uh, he's, the, you know, kind of emotional and, and, and reckless. So uh, another one interesting aspect of this chapter, though, mostly it's Pierre's thoughts and his musings, and and I don't know how much I want to say about them. Uh, I think this is part of the style of the novel to just go on for pages and pages with um, internal meandering thoughts, and you got the narrate. You still have the narrator, like in the first part, sticking his kind of beak into the story, sometimes blocking out his knowledge and saying, like, we don't know what Pierre thought at this point, other times talking back to Pierre. That kind of narration game continues on in, in this part, this this um, uh, second quarter of the novel. Uh, but there's an interesting scene where he kind of has a very awkward conversation with his mother, and all his conversation with his mother are kind of awkward in this story, but this one is in, in particular. And then when he leaves, she kind of has a a rant, a lecture to a portrait of of Pierre. And she actually throws like a fork at a portrait of Pierre that exists in the room and she starts talking back to it. The same way Pierre talks to the portrait of his father, she's, she takes to talking to this portrait of Pierre. She, of course, thinks he's, he's going a little nutty in, um, it, with his recent behavior. And this is her, her catharsis over this over this turn in Pierre's character. And she starts to feel despair about the family line almost. So she throws this um, silver fork at the portrait and then she says, Yes, thou art stabbed, but the wrong hand stabbed thee. This should be have been thy silver blow. Pierre, Pierre, thou hadst stabbed me with the poison point. I feel my blood chemically changing in me. I, the mother of the only surname Glendinging, 
I feel now as though I was born the last of a swiftly to be extinguished race. For swiftly to be extinguished is the race whose only heir but so much impedes upon the deed of shame. And some deed of shame or something more dubious and more dark is in thy soul, or else some by the inspector with a cloudy shamefaced front sat on yon seat but now. What can it be? Pierre unbosom, smile not so lightly upon my heavy grief. Answer! What is it, boy? Can't it? Can't it? No, yes, surely can't it. No, cannot be. Was he not at Lucy's yesterday? Nor was she here? But she would have not... Not, she would not see me when I called. What can this bode? So he definitely, she definitely thinks something up, either something fracturing his relationship with Lucy or maybe some other kind of sexual infidelities going on on the side. But it, it's a bit of a bizarre chapter, chapter 7. Um, mostly we spend it in Pierre's um, mind. Then we get to chapter 8. This is the second interview with with Isabel, that's what it's called. The second interview at the farmhouse and the second part of the story of Isabel, their immediate impulse, impulsive effect upon Pierre. Impulsive, um, obviously, um, we've known that about Pierre from well, pretty much page one. So this part of the story is really about how Isabella finds out about Pierre and finds out about the Glendinging family. And she's basically got two pieces of evidence. One is this handkerchief that the father figure, the one who came by once in a while to visit her, left, which has, you know, this led her to the Glendinging family. It's got like a monogram or something on it. And the second is the guitar itself, which has her name etched on it. Now, the handkerchief is pretty simple. It's just her, his, her father's handkerchief had the name Glendinging on it, and then she kind of knew the connection. The guitar is the more strange one of the two. She writes, she says, Thou shalt remember my brother, my telling thee last night how the how thou knowest what I meant that there, pointing at the guitar. Thou shalt remember how it came to my possession. But perhaps I did not tell thee that the peddler said he got it in barter from the servants of a great house some distance from the place where I was in residing. So the fact it, the guitar it has her name on it, etched on it. It comes from the old General Glendinging's estate, Sally Meadow, Saddle Meadows. And it gave her such comfort and it gave her such meaning in life. So it kind of, it filled in for her, her father almost, or filled in for her missing family. So it's, it's more of a mystical connection to the family. I don't think it's ever explained why, at least on this part, why Isabel's name is etched on it. So anyway, the guitar seems to point to, the, to the, this connection as well. Um, and, and this, of course, convinces Pierre, who's already been convinced. We, we know that from Chapter 7. He's already put the pieces together. But um, Pierre insists that, well, part of the story is that this Della Ulver, this woman who had this illegitimate child, the one he got the bicker with Falgrave over, that she actually helped Isabella during her destitution and her desperate years. So he decides he has a moral obligation to help. Della. So he, he pens a letter to her basically saying, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to make sure your, your kid is raised, you know, not destitute, not homeless, not in some kind of charity burden. You know, I'm rich. I can do this. So he gives this letter to Isabella and she's supposed to bring it to, to Della. Now, it also seems that Isabella is a very charitable person despite being poor, that she goes to other houses in the countryside and helps them out. Now, as this chapter ends, he goes to, yeah, he goes back to uh, Falgrave to confront him, to kind of finish up this, this conflict he started in the earlier chapter about 
illegitimacy and our moral obligation to to these illegitimate children and the, these single mothers. And he, so he asked directly about Delhi Ulver, what's going to happen to her, what's her fate, and and he's kind of the same kind of dodgy answer that he he gave before. But Pierre takes this to mean that essentially they're going to abandon the community, is going to abandon this woman and the child. And Pierre's response to this is basically a rejection of the entire profession of of, of the clergy. Saying, quote, I begin to see that how thy profession is unavoidably entangled by all the fleshy alliances that cannot move with godly freedom in a world of beneficence. So those are pretty harsh words. And he, you know, he basically rejects Falgrave at this point. And the last line of the chapter is, good night, sir, as he um, turns his back on, on, on the religious. Chapter 9, now this is the last chapter I'm going to look at. It's quite short. It's called More Light and the Gloom of That Light, More Gloom in the Light of That Gloom. And we're back in Pierre's mind. I don't know if this is a pattern here where we spend a chapter in Pierre's mind and then we have you know, some more story from other people and then back to Pierre's mind. But that, that's where we are. And this is where he makes his decision. And he goes back to thinking about Dante like he did when he first heard about Isabella and first learned about her. But now he kind of moves beyond Dante a little bit and he reads Hamlet. And he thinks... Uh, about Hamlet's dilemma. Hamlet's dilemma being he had to act and he didn't, right? That's the tragedy of Hamlet, was his inability to act in his, his basically paralysis. So he realizes, like, well, Hamlet's, again, you know, faced with fate. You know, in Hamlet's case, it was the, the murder of his, his father. Um, but faced with that, he chose kind of inaction and delay. And that's what Pierre commits to not doing. He, he commits to some kind of action to, to save Isabel's reputation, to protect his mother's reputation, and, and the, the kind of the whole family's, the way the family looks to the outside world. So that what his answer to this problem will be is something we're going to have to take up in the next episode. Um, again, like if it seems like that much has happened in this novel, I... And we're at the halfway point. We're halfway done with the story in terms of page bulk. Um, the t the nature of the narration changes in the second half. It kind of speeds up uh, and becomes a more modern tale. The first half is still ponderous and, and almost like ancient in the way, maybe not ancient, but you know, I'm not that familiar with kind of 18th century British novels, but I kind of imagine there's something like this, really kind of ponderous musings, a lot of time in people's heads, a lot of... Uh, you know that kind of sentimental over reflection on things but i don't know uh the second half kind of speeds up but think back at what's really happened here pierre we meet him he you know finds out he's got this sister this half sister he meets her he learns her past and he decides he's got to do something about it that's all that's happened in the first half of the novel the rest is over writing essentially and it's it's just again i'm kind of just amazed that this novel exists in this form especially with all kind of the the overhang of that that those long musings the sexual overhang the the suggestions of incest the the dilemma over like this kind of this the fact that it's said in kind of a weird american aristocracy that shouldn't really be there it's right it doesn't seem to exist in a world of democracy the way even like moby dick does this is just such an isolated world in the countryside, you know, like, I don't know, there's something kind of unreal about it. And even in the way Melville writes it, there's something kind of unreal about it. Um, but I'm going to have to go ahead and read the second half of the novel to, to 
you know, to fully get my head around what he's trying to do here. I hope I can come to some answers. Um, so I don't know. I can't. I don't. I, I don't know if I can re recommend this or not. I, I think it's it's worth an experience if you have the time to do it. But um, we'll see. I'm gonna you know read the second half and then come back and and in a little bit record my thoughts on the on the third quarter and the fourth quarter of of this novel. So I don't know if you've read Pierre. If you're one of the few people out there who's read Pierre and have thoughts about it, let me know what you think. Um, I would love to have some response from the real experts here. Um, just send me an email at 100pageskath at gmail.com or, or just leave a post post below. Um, so I'll be back next time. I'll, I'll be looking at chapters 10 through 18, I guess, which will take us to page 308 in the Library of America version. Um, and we'll see where that takes us. That'll, that's the next episode. So I look forward to sharing my thoughts about that with you. Um, that's it for now. I'll see you next time. Thanks, as always, for listening.